If there is a godfather of real-world data, it would be Mark Berger. Currently the chair of the ISPOR Real-World Data Task Force, Mark has developed many of the models and techniques we use today to put real-world evidence into practice. Mark was a senior scientist at OptumInsight, now part of the United Healthcare Group, and also was the VP of Global Health Outcomes at Eli Lilly for five years, as well as the VP of Real-World Data at Pfizer. He's now an advisor to Shift Analytics. Mark, as always, it's, uh, it's great to speak to you, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Very well, Mark. Thanks again for your time. Before we get started, there's a lot of controversy or at least even lack of understanding precisely what real-world data is. Could you tell us your definition of what real-world data is as opposed to the data you get from a clinical trial? How are they different? Sure. A randomized clinical trial tries to answer the question, can a treatment work? That's different from what we want to know when you're in practice and delivering care where you want to know, does it work and for whom? So when you do a clinical trial, you specify all the data you're going to collect and you curate that very carefully. The healthcare system throws off an enormous amount of data and collects an enormous amount of data all the time, which is now all being digitized. And that information can help us ask the question, not can it work, but does it work? And for which patients does it work? Does real-world data make it easier to do a if-then sort of comparison between the next comparator? Well, it asks a whole set of different questions. In the real world, or in what, when we do practice, patients just don't get on a treatment and they never change their dose or never change to a different medication. That happens all the time in the real world. So you can look at the patient journey and see what happens to the patient, and you can see which pathways lead to the best outcomes for the patient. What do you see are potentially key applications that will be emerging as the practice is more and more defined? Sure. Before I answer that question, let me just specifically talk about when people talk about real-world data, what are they talking about? Sure. Thank you. Initially, everybody talked about uh, medical claims data because every time a medical procedure is done or treatment is given, there's a recording that it was done. And so... We look at that, and then in the last few years, people have been talking about electronic health record data. But the universe of real-world data now expands to almost everything, from weather data to socioeconomic data to genomic data, to anything that is not collected directly for a particular clinical trial. And so it's become very expansive. Now, when you ask what are the applications, how can you use this data, well, Initially, and it's been used for a long time, it's been used to answer questions which you cannot answer by randomized clinical trials. So looking at rare adverse events and safety signals, you cannot really collect that and see that in clinical trials. And so we've been using real-world data for years to um, assess that. Or if you want to look at the impact of adherence and compliance, you're not going to be able to get that in a clinical trial because adherence and compliance is enforced. So if you want to see what happens in, with patients where we know that patients don't take all their medicine or stop taking it, you can only do that in a real-world setting. Or if you want to see the economic impact, you have to actually see what's going on uh, when patients are treated within their health uh, system. A second application is... Um, we will never do all the randomized controlled clinical trials that you want to do. Uh, they're expensive, take too long, and uh, it's infeasible to do all those clinical trials. So that gap is being filled in by 
analyzing real-world data. And so you don't get comparative effectiveness trials of every combination of what comparisons you want to do. You can look at that with real-world data. Clinical trials often exclude special populations. You can look at that with real-world data. It's being widely used and has been widely used for years. And as I said, regulatory agencies use it for safety, but it's used by HTA authorities and P&T committees to inform coverage and reimbursement decisions. And it's used by everyone across the healthcare system in the spirit of evidence-based medicine, which says you use the best available information to inform decision-making. And sometimes the only available information is real-world data and real-world evidence, and you use that appropriately to inform decisions. Now, several of the agencies we have in Europe are, I don't want to say they have a bias, but they certainly see using real-world data and evidence applications with somewhat of a jaundiced view. Why do you think there's still so much controversy around this, firstly? And secondly, how do you think the opinions about using real-world data for actual application coverage decisions differs between the U.S. and Europe? Sure. So the skepticism derives from the fact that when you do a clinical trial and you randomize patients to get one treatment or another, um, it allows you to control for other factors that may impact the outcome, things that you know about that may impact the outcome, and also things you don't know about that may impact the outcome. When you, do, when you use real-world data and you do what's called observational uh, research, um, it's not possible to, con- uh, to completely control for all of those confounding um, issues. Now, there are statistical techniques that people use to try and better uh, deal with the issue of confounding, but there is a divide among people, who some who think that this does a very good job and some think that it can't do a very good job. And then the other issue is the imputation of causality. Mm-hmm. Um, when you randomize patients to treatment A or B, then you can say they didn't have treatment A or B. Then you give them treatment A or B and something happens. So when it happens, you say, I can attribute that to the treatment. When you look at observational data, there is controversy about whether you can impute causality. Now, many people, including myself, believe that a well-done and well-executed observational study can get you really good information and get you really close in many cases, to imputing causality. But there are those who grew up in the era of randomized controlled clinical trials, and they don't really want to go that in that direction. They think that that's allowing for more errors to be made in terms of judgment. That really ignores the spirit of evidence-based medicine because the system is throwing off so much data. How can you ignore it and not use it to inform your decision-making? Now, The differences between Europe and the U.S., well, the differences here are not about the data. The same questions and analyses are being applied by users in the U.S. and Europe. The real issue is data availability, data quality, and the creation of an information technology infrastructure that makes it easy to interrogate the data to answer the questions that you want. This gets wrapped up into issues of protecting patient confidential information and how you're making sure that the data is being used for appropriate purposes and is being used in the most rigorous way possible. That's where there are differences between the U.S. and Europe. 
with Europe having much greater protections around and restrictions around the use of this data, which is mostly available only to governments and academic researchers, whereas in the U.S. there are commercially available data sets which allow a much larger cohort of researchers to access this data. Both countries are trying to build an infrastructure, and both countries are making slow progress. In the U.S., we have the FDA Sentinel system, which is a distributed data network, which is being used for safety. And they're building a infrastructure around the PCORnet, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Network, which is trying to build this as a public good. But there are also large infrastructures that are being built in the private sector, which are quite valuable and useful. In Europe, there is a lot of barriers to data sharing. And although there are efforts around IMI and other collaborations between the EMA and pharmaceutical companies and other stakeholders, there is enormous reluctance to share data across country boundaries or even between different healthcare systems within the same country. And so there's much greater difficulty in gaining the size and complexity of the data sets you'd want to use to answer the questions that are most important. Now, digging into that a little bit more, I mean, now Europe just passed the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. Is this overhyped as an issue? Do you think it's going to cause trouble, or do you think it's just uh, making mountains out of molehills? No, this is mountains. This is real mountains. (laughs) So so um, we're actually building real mountains. Yeah, okay. (laughs) You're building real mountains. You know, Europe was way ahead of the U.S., in terms of collecting this data. Um, The Nordic countries have registries. Well, Estonia has been collecting their data since 2001. I mean, it's... Yeah, you know, but but, but even before that, they were collecting... The Nordic countries were collecting registry data. The yellow card system, which turned into CPRD and GPRD in the UK, wonderful collection of longitudinal data. But they fruited away that lead, And they've made it more and more difficult to actually enable the appropriate leveraging of this kind of data by researchers who want to look at quality and delivery. So the concerns around privacy have made it more difficult. And I'm not diminishing that. It's a real issue. We want to make sure that the data is used for appropriate purposes. But um, we haven't found a really good balance. And I think that The balance in the U.S. is probably a little bit better where we believe that there is sufficient ways to de-identify data that can allow researchers to interrogate the data with protections for patient confidentiality. They are more conservative about this in Europe. Because the hospital systems in the U.S. are generally autonomous and individual, and the general state of play about data ownership is if you manipulate and manage the data, then you can own the data. You have very large hospital systems, the Mayo system, the UPenn system, Vanderbilt, that are now commercializing their data. And these have four, five, six million patient records that link to genomic databases. You just don't have the wealth of those sort of private assets at your disposal in Europe. Do you see yeah, this? Is the, the, this is the issue. I yeah. mean, the issue is, you know, I believe it entirely and with all my being that healthcare is a public good and every patient should have access to appropriate healthcare. Having said that, the public sector um, has not always shown itself to be the most fast moving or innovative part of our socioeconomic environment. And 
the private sector, when there is profit motive, seems to be able to move faster and come up with innovation. How do we harness that energy and that, and that motivation of the private sector to do public good? That's, that's one of the central questions of our time. And in the U.S., there's more of a public-private partnership environment that allows that to happen or letting the private enterprise innovate, whereas in Europe, that's concerns around making sure that the data is only used for appropriate purposes really has inhibited fast progress in this area. One would hope that some of these IMI programs would be able to break that down. But again, you see a sort of tug of war going between certain political classes and the actual reality on the ground where you do need the data innovation to make this stuff happen. How do you think you can break through that logjam, Mark? How do you move this forward? Well, I think that Europe has even bigger fish to fry right now. So, sure. you know, when we see the political landscape in Europe, whether or not England is going to exit from the European Union. What is the tug of war between countries and the European Union around autonomy and decision making and the rise of populists? You know, uh, it's hard to see how they're going to come together in a leap forward over the next couple of years in the healthcare arena. You know, I think that there is just, I suspect that Europe is not going to make as much progress as is hoped for and as they'd like to make. Changing tack here a little bit, one of the other areas where we've seen a lot of innovation is things around the breakthrough designation. One of the criticisms we're seeing against the breakthrough designation is that there isn't enough evidence when the package comes to be evaluated where a lot of practitioners are saying, well, 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 wait a minute, we should be running another clinical trial. We should be doing more testing after we verify that this actually works. How do you see real-world evidence or real-world data being able to bridge that gap between the need for early access, but as well as the, the clamor for more evidence long-term? Well, let's examine one of the underlying assumptions in that question, which is that the old way of doing things, we knew everything we needed to know when we approved a drug. <laughs> and that just ain't true. No, that's, that's certainly you know, not true. That's correct. You know, so that there was always, an, there's always been a need for additional data collection after um, a new treatment hits the market. And there's always a need for additional investigation. And whether that investigation is through additional randomized controlled clinical trials or through real-world data and, and real-world evidence is always the question. Now, as I said earlier, we've always used real-world data to assess um, uh, safety signals for rare adverse events. So we've always recognized that you had to collect data and update our risk-benefit profile for a treatment um, as we gained uh, experience in larger and larger numbers of patients. Now, with the accelerated approvals and breakthrough designations, we're actually moving it a little bit further and we're saying, well, we think the promise is so great, we want to make it available, but we now recognize that we formally have to require that there be extra data collected after a new treatment hits the market. Many times that is now through requiring an additional randomized controlled clinical trial or through a registry, which instead of randomizing patients, just makes you collect all the data about the information patients who are getting the, uh, the treatment and maybe comparators and using that information to inform and update the risk-benefit profile of the treatment. A lot of this could be done neither through RCTs or, or 
through specific registries, but could be done through the data that's being thrown off by the healthcare system. The question is, when do you know enough and how confident are you in, in the information that you're getting? And that's where different value systems and different decision makers have, may, may make different judgments. And the real question is, when you make a decision based upon new information, well, how much regret are you going to have if you make a wrong decision? Yeah. Putting it into that context makes it easier to say, well, if I know it's worked in a randomized controlled trial in a population, and I collect information, let's say, in a special population, and it makes sense biologically that it worked that way, and I see that it has a good safety profile in that, even though I haven't done a randomized controlled clinical trial, I mean, the risk of having regret is relatively low. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would think you could, be, you could make that leap of faith and say, let's do that and, and monitor it carefully. Yep. Not everybody believes that. No, and, and this gets to some of the criticisms you hear from some of the HTA bodies and some of the payers in Europe where, you know, well, the, you know, the randomized clinical trial is the gold standard. I mean, yes, well, it's a gold standard within the context of an exclusion and inclusion criteria. And what we're talking about now is being slightly more pragmatic in that we're looking at actual practical use and then trying to evaluate it in a more pragmatic fashion, which kind of gets us into the pragmatic trials. Can you tell us how you see the evolution of what is a pragmatic trial, which is basically just grabbing the data as it comes and then measuring? Can you tell us their upsides and downsides in the context of what we're talking about now? I mean, is that something that we should be looking at more? So pragmatic clinical trials is more than just grabbing data. So what it tries to do is to be a hybrid. It says, we will randomize patients to treatments, and then instead of enforcing adherence and compliance and seeing them every week to see how they're doing. We'll just let the care system deliver that care once they've been randomized and we'll see what happens. So you're trying to get the benefits of randomization to deal with known and unknown confounders with the benefits of it being an observational study saying, we're going to see what happens in the real world. We're not going to enforce adherence and compliance. Well, that's a really nice idea theoretically it raises a lot of difficult issues. One of which is after you randomize patients to a treatment, are you going to enforce them to stay on that treatment? Right. As we talked about in the real world, patients will change their dose or change their treatment or add a combination therapy when they're not getting the desired result. A lot of people don't know how to deal with that. And it requires some either enforced adherence to the original treatment assignment for some period of time, or if you don't, then what you end up with a pragmatical trial is an observational real-world data trial on day two, and already you start seeing lots of switching and, and dosage adjustments. So then you have the same problems with analyzing that data, and you've lost a lot of the benefit of randomization. <laughs> Having said that, there are those who believe that we can find a way to balance and require treatment assignment to be enforced with what happens in the real world so that you can get a sense of not only should it work, but does it work in more routine ways that it's being delivered? One of the things that people are talking about to try and sift through these problems is artificial intelligence. It's all the rage. It's in the middle of what we would call the Gartner hype cycle. How much of AI do you think is hype and how much is it reality, Mark? I mean, you're working on the frontier of these sort of things. What's your opinion of this? Well, 
In truth, right now, it's overhyped. Okay. And I think that some of the proponents of artificial intelligence have done it a disservice by calling it artificial intelligence because there's a lot of confusion about that. Data sets are becoming so large and so complex, they are now becoming amenable to knowledge discovery, which is different from how we've been interrogating data before. Interrogating data before says, I have a hypothesis. I think I, I know some factors that are going to impact the outcomes, and now I'll test that hypothesis and try and disprove the null. That's different than saying there are so many different things that are going on here. I'm going to let the data reveal associations that are not obvious. And this is called by many names, including machine learning and artificial intelligence. This has the potential to revolutionize analytics, and it has done so already in certain fields. And it's being investigated in healthcare, and I have no doubt will yield significant benefits as integrated quality data sets become widely available. The problem is they are not widely available, and the infrastructure, even the hardware we're using and the software we're using to analyze the data may not be uh, sufficiently adequate to allow us to analyze that data the way we want to, because these kinds of analyses are very computationally intensive and therefore can take a very long time. So a variety of shortcuts are taken to uh, diminish the amount of time it takes. And so a little bit, it becomes like looking under the lamppost for your car keys. Because that's where the light's better. Yeah, right. That's where the light's better. There is advances being made in how we actually can analyze that from the hardware, the the usage of GPUs and TPUs as opposed to CPUs. And there are advances in cloud giving us greater capacity to do this. And there are advances in other approaches from an analytic standpoint that allow us to manipulate large objects within the data. All of these things are happening simultaneously, but we haven't cracked the code yet how to efficiently allow us to do knowledge discovery in these data sets and more work needs to be done. I have no doubt we're going to get there, but people who say that we are there are overhyping it. And there's been a lot of disappointment by end users who've been telling them that AI is going to revolutionize how they can deliver care. And it hasn't just happened yet. The problem when you get a lot of large data sets and you start running correlation algorithms as you run into what's called the uh, Brazilian butter futures problem, where there was a study done about eight years ago where they looked at the number one correlator with um, the S&P 500 and it was Brazilian butter futures was the single best predictor of um, the overall S&P 500. So I, I guess it's a question of machine learning can help, but there still needs to be some level of oversight because we can get false positives and false correlations. Under and the- so there are, that's right. And, that, and, and there's a challenge with overfitting data and all of this. And I think that a big issue that's come up in the AI machine learning field and a, a big com- conversation that's being had now is how do you make it explicable? I don't want just a black box that tells right. me this is the answer. I want to understand why it's the answer so that I can faith, I have faith I can make decisions based upon that. And we're still figuring out how to make that explicable. Now, one way to do that might be to do your knowledge discovery using machine learning and then on a different data set saying, now that I've discovered these factors, 
let me do an old-fashioned regression analysis, which I trust because I've been doing it for 50 years. <laughs> let me see if I can get the same result. But no one's quite gone there yet. Well, there's nothing wrong with old-fashioned regression analysis, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the areas that's also being discussed um, that we're looking at now is the use of social media in real-world evidence. Now, we're getting enormous pushback on the idea, even the concept of using social media um, for real-world evidence for safety signals, even from several of the HTAs. Obviously, there's the dirty data question. What do you see are some of the practical applications of using what we would call non-normal data, shopping data, marketing data, you know, what we call noisy, non-clean data for trying to derive health benefit? Do you think this is the wave of the future? Oh, it's going to happen so that, you know, uh, the voice of the patient and their caregivers have to come through more strongly. And this is one way that that voice can come through. And their concerns may be different than what a regulator has or an HTA authority may have. How we use this data appropriately and carefully at the same time that we're protecting patient confidentiality, that's a really hard nut to crack. Yeah. The world is evolving, and the amount of information that I'm willing to share is very different than what my children are sharing already on social media and so much of this data is being made publicly available already. And it's clear from a number of uh, surveys that patients will be very happy and willing to share their data, even their genomics data, which can then lead to re-identification if they believe that the data is going to be used for a public good purpose to help improve healthcare delivery, help make patients get better outcomes. They don't want it to be used so that they're going to be sold more Widgets. You know, widgets that they don't want, (laughs) you know, and they can't afford. But they do want it used for good purposes. We already know that this dirty data provides us insights. So weather data already has been shown to allow us to have good insights into the patterns of diseases that we otherwise wouldn't have had, or the pattern of seeking health care that we otherwise wouldn't have had. How we go about revealing our preferences and values, which can be seen through how we use um, internet search engines can lead us to get powerful insights about our attitudes about what we're willing to spend our money on or not, and how we view healthcare and how we use it. So we're going to see that being used in the future, but how we get to a place where people trust that information and people feel that uh, patients are being protected adequately is just going to be a, a long slog. This last month, the Trump administration announced a new reference pricing proposal for Medicare Part B drugs. The proposal, as it's been laid out, said it would only impact 1% of R&D budgets. What do you think about this assertion that doing international reference pricing to 126% of the global average is only going to impact 1% of R&D budgets? Let me just say that I usually don't opine too much about reference pricing, which is (laughs) brought uh, political discussion. I did some work a number of years ago on this, and when, which instead of calling it reference pricing, I called it, we called it differential pricing. Yeah. And differential pricing theoretically should maximize social welfare because you obviously don't want to charge individuals or countries who are very poor the same thing you want to charge very rich countries because they can't afford to pay the same amount for different breakthrough healthcare treatments. And if you want to maximize social welfare, 
you'd like to be able to have people some adjustment what's for affordability, uh, not just the value of the product or what the market can bear. I believe that reference pricing undermines uh, global social welfare. And, and so I'm not a big fan of reference pricing in general. What we do know is, regardless of what happens, whether it's reference pricing or not, as a society changes the incentives for profit, we see that there is a impact on R&D spending. And that's true across all industries, but it's also clearly true in the pharmaceutical industry. And there's research that's been done on this for over 25 years that show this. So I don't know what the impact on the R&D budgets is. What I do know is that it will have an impact on R&D budgets. And we have to ask the question, what are you trying to balance? Well, there's real rationale to try and save money in the short term, but you might be giving up benefits in the long term. And what that balance should look like, that's a conversation that we could have a legitimately good one in society, but we really don't. What do you think should be happening then, Mark? What do you think we should be doing about this new IP in pharmaceutical sector? 83% of it is being derived from the United States. How can we address this? This is a political issue, which is why I don't try and really figure <laughs> out how it's going to happen to it. Because world trade is uh, something that also has come into the fore recently. And we know that Trump and the U.S. administration is having a large disagreement with China. And they're putting on tariffs, which most people believe does not maximize economic growth around the world. On the other hand, we also know that uh, the internationalism that has characterized the status quo for the last 25 to 30 years has not led to a desired outcome in terms of the advances of some of the third world or poorer countries, and they still feel like they're being exploited. The answer is going to come through a recognition that at the end of the day, we've moved to an integrated world economy. And an integrated world economy has to care about everybody in all parts of the world and really shouldn't be trying to disproportionately advantage anybody in one particular country. Now, beyond that, we know that countries themselves aren't the unit that we're really looking at. So the U.S. is not just one advanced country. Well, there are multiple U.S. countries in terms of access to health care. And the very rich get access to whatever they want. The very poor through Medicaid, get access to most everything that they need. The elderly get access to much of what they need through Medicare. But there are many patients who do not have access to care. And a lot of the costs are being passed on to them. And we know that people, when faced with large out-of-pocket medical costs, don't always make good decisions. They do not seek that medical care because they rather spend it on putting groceries on the table or buying a bike for their son or whatever the reason is. And so these kinds of discontinuities in uh, what people can afford and what people pay for are faced in the U.S. This is a long-term major sociopolitical question around how do we make sure that the goal here is to fairly distribute access to healthcare resources so that everybody gets an appropriate level of health care and it's not really constrained by their ability to pay. If you had one thing you could change today, Mark, out of everything we've been talking about, 
to facilitate better use of real-world data, better use of evidence, instituting a new clinical trial designs to address these big concerns, these big socioeconomic concerns about access to healthcare. What would you like to do? So I think that the private sector and the governments, for that matter, respond to changes of incentives. And the incentive I'd like to change is that we acknowledge that you as an individual or you as a patient, you own your data. So if somebody takes your data, they still have to make it accessible to you. If somebody collects your data and you want it to be shared with someone else, they should have to share it and not make it so difficult. And if patients actually were able to say, I own this data, this would lead to the creation of unified large data sets which would then be made available to the universe of researchers for us to do the investigations we want to do to prove healthcare and outcomes. Now, part and parcel of that would be, you also can say what your data is going to be used for. Maybe you don't want Facebook to use your data to tell your daughter that I think you're pregnant because you've been buying diapers at the store. Maybe you don't want them to do that. Well, you should be able to say no to that. In the same token, You may not want to be able to let everybody to use your data to tailor their marketing to you. You may want that to happen, but you should have that choice. But you also want to have that data being made available so we can understand what's happening. What is all this money we're spending on healthcare? What's coming out the back end? Are people getting better? Who is getting better? Where is the most bang for the buck we're getting in the healthcare system? How do we design it so that It makes it easier for patients to adhere and comply to their treatments. How do we design a healthcare system that really is patient-centric? And, you know, it all starts with, I think, that we have to give co-ownership or ownership of the original ownership of the data back to the individuals from whom the data is collected, which is the citizens and patients. That's fantastic, Mark. Really, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very, very much for your time. My pleasure. Take care.